it was the only faculty meeting in the six years that I was there that had 100% attendance. And the subject was the emergency department. And I presented my plans for the emergency department. And before I ever said a word, the chair of surgery, the department that I had been appointed in, stood up and said, anybody who would do full-time emergency medicine is demeaning to this faculty. This is EM Pulse with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana. The Alexandria Plan. In the quote you heard, Dr. Peter Rosen described a moment that exemplified the fight for emergency medicine legitimacy. Dr. Rosen was one of the founders of emergency medicine, and of course, he wrote the first EM textbook. You know, Sarah, I have spent a lot of time lately thinking about what does the future look like? You and everyone else. It's definitely a time of change, and it's hard not to think about how COVID is changing the way we practice, educate, and the way we do life. And I think to look forward, it helps to look back. So I spoke with Dr. Brian Zink. He is a professor of emergency medicine and senior associate dean for faculty and faculty development at the University of Michigan. He is also a past president of SAM and author of Anyone, Anything, Anytime, A History of Emergency Medicine. He wrote this book because he realized that many of the emergency medicine founders were, let's say, aging out. And there was a very small window to capture the history of emergency medicine firsthand. So he packed a mic and a bag and went around the country recording the stories of 45 emergency medicine founders. You will hear some of these clips that he recorded firsthand throughout our podcast. Brian, thank you so much for sharing these clips with us. Yeah, it was the best thing I ever did in my academic life. There's a lot that went into the book, but I have a huge trove of audio recordings, transcripts. I still have all that stuff in my little archive. So modern medicine has been around for centuries, and yet emergency medicine as a specialty is only 40 years old. Before emergency medicine was a specialty, Brian, how were acutely ill patients cared for? Well, care for might be an overstatement in that many of them, depending on the condition, were not cared for. They were brought to emergency departments, usually by their own family. Sometimes it would be a volunteer ambulance service. Sometimes it was the ambulance driver slash funeral home director who would respond to accident scenes. And if you weren't dead, it would bring you to the hospital. It was an abomination, especially since at the time we knew coming out of World War II in Korea, we knew by the 1950s how to triage and and transport and care for trauma patients and have much better survival. So that knowledge was there. It just never came out of the military into, at the time, emergency rooms. So, you know, so the typical thing Patient brought into an emergency room, which may have been a room in a hospital, a very small area. A nurse was there to kind of triage the patient and look them over and then get on the phone to call a doctor uh, who would either be in the hospital and come down. Then that evolved as emergency department visits started going up. They went up about 300% between the end of World War II and 1960. So society was more mobile. 
people when they moved into new areas as we had the huge migration of people from southern states up into the industrial north and midwest those people tended to lack health care didn't acquire health care when they moved and they would go to the nearest hospital if they got sick or were injured and so the volume started going up in hospitals there was also a big stimulus at the time when our country was struggling with whether or not to do a universal health care plan. That never obviously went through, but what did go through was the senators and congressmen lobbying hard to get money out of the federal government to build hospitals. So it was called the Hill-Burton Act. So you have hospitals popping up all over the country, new buildings, and those had usually bigger emergency departments because they saw that the volumes were going up. But the thing that was lacking was anyone trained to actually take care of emergencies. So most hospitals used a mix of their staff. They often used house officers to moonlight. And unfortunately, it was the least trained and the worst trained. There were reports of you know vagrant physicians who would be booted out of one place to another place and kind of migrating around the country uh, working in emergency departments. So it was not good care. And many people became really appalled by it and said, you know, we need to do something about it. And that's how a few conscientious physicians started the field. Dr. Richard Levy was an early emergency medicine resident who, at 30 years old, became the department leader and residency program director at Cincinnati General Hospital. But I can tell you that, that it was, it was uh, wild and woolly. It was, it was the Old West mm-hmm. compared to anything that anybody could imagine today. It was unsupervised. It was not good. It offended me. I didn't like it because I was always worried about hurting people, and I, and I knew that other people were making mistakes that could be harmful, and I knew that was happening, but there wasn't any supervision. Mm-hmm. And I also knew that it was for another generation that was out there to bring some order to all of this and to be able to, to make it work with, with some instruction. Okay, I just have to go back. When did you say we first had the debate about universal health care? Well, that started back really in the 1930s. In the 1940s, when Roosevelt was pushing it, it got the label socialized medicine. And as the Soviet Union was rising and and China as communist states, anything that smacked of communism was viewed very negatively. So when the opponents, and one of those was the AMA, actually, back in the pre-1940s, the AMA was very opposed to universal health care and they called it socialized medicine, and then it kind of stuck, and and it uh, was used very effectively to to push it down and to you know basically suppress it for you know another fifty sixty years. It could have been so different if we would have, like many other Western democracies, gone to a universal healthcare type system, say in the nineteen forties or nineteen fifties, but we never got there. Okay, you paint a bleak picture of emergency medicine. Tell me, when did the good news start? Yeah, well, it started in Alexandria, Virginia in the late 1950s. A guy named Jim Mills was a GP, had some internal medicine training, was working as a general practitioner in Alexandria, very busy, 
And he was made the chief of staff of Alexandria Hospital. And right at that time, they were having a boom in their emergency department visits. We would laugh now, but it was up to 18,000 visits a year, and it was overwhelming the hospital. They were using a combination of residents, interns, medical students from Georgetown to staff their emergency department, along with some physicians that would come in overnight. But the staff physicians didn't like being assigned to the emergency department. And then there was a crisis with the foreign medical graduate exam, the ECFMG in 1958. It made it a lot harder to pass that exam. So the house officers that staffed Alexandria Hospital, the numbers were cut in half. So they had a staffing crisis, and Jim Mills, as the chief of staff, said, we need to do something about this. When he worked in the emergency department, he actually really enjoyed that work. He was a very socially conscious guy, and he liked the fact that he saw different kinds of patients in the emergency department, more poor patients, more patients of color. And he found that very rewarding. And he got to thinking, well, I like this work. I'm not so crazy about my general practice and he said to two or three other people who were on staff, would you be interested in forming a small group to provide emergency department coverage 24-7? And so he convinced three other people. And in 1961, they had a contract with Alexandria Hospital to start staffing the emergency department full-time. That started in July of 1961. So they were the first full-time emergency physicians. They worked noon to midnight, midnight to noon, 12 hours. (laughs) Interesting choice. And they were on for five days in a row, and then they were off for five days. And that was unheard of at that time. No physicians had five days off in a row. The other thing was that their peer physicians weren't getting called in in the middle of the night to take care of things. So they were very happy. So they would talk about going to parties where a lot of the medical staff and their spouses were there and and the spouses becoming up saying oh you just you just improved our lives so much by being there in the emergency department and uh, they got a lot of really positive feedback and it took off and they doubled their emergency department volume in just a couple of years they were up in 36,000 patients and this was labeled the Alexandria plan and uh, it caught on across the country many other Physicians from all around the country came and interviewed them and asked them what they were doing and visited the emergency department. And that model then spread across the country slowly. I mean, by the mid-60s, there were probably you know eight or ten Alexandria Plan-type groups around the country. But they went all the way to the West Coast. They were featured as a segment on the precursor to 60 Minutes, the CBS news hour show. They were in magazines because there was a lot of attention at the time to this poor quality emergency care and how emergency departments were getting so much busier. The media picked up on it quite well and they got quite a bit of attention. Dr. John McDade was one of the original physicians at Alexandria. Here is his description of their plan. The first time it came into my head, I was, I was in the elevator going up to make rounds. Jim got on and he said, let me ask you a question. I said, okay. He said, what do you think about taking over the emergency department and, and, and running it like a private practice? We decided we were going to have three audiences, three people that we were going to take care of, patients, the hospital, and the medical staff. And we were going to give 
all of them the same top door service. service. That, was, that was the whole approach when we went into it. Dr. Ralston R. Hannes was a founding father of emergency medicine. He's a past president of ASEP and was the co-organizer with Dr. Wigenstein of the first scientific assembly in 1969. Here, he recounts the courage of the Alexandria plan. Well, Mills' thing got a lot right. of and that was a bold move, and it was a brilliant move. They, those guys, they, they took balls to, for four of them to give up their private practice, and they were busy and move into the emergency department full-time as hospital-based physician. That really got it started. That was their, their thing. So how did the Alexandria plan spread to what we know today? So these groups started around the country, and then in Michigan, a guy named John Wigenstein started an Alexandria-type practice with another physician in, near Lansing, Michigan. And he got the idea of organizing so that emergency physicians could provide high-quality education to each other because everyone had a gap because they had no emergency medicine training. Wigenstein had actually done some otolaryngology for a while, and he had done general practice. Other people, early providers, had internal medicine. Some had surgery. Some had pathology. So they all had gaps in their training. And... Wigenstein's idea was let's create a national organization so that we can put on CME conferences and teach each other you know, what we need to learn. Also, from the billing standpoint, the payers didn't know what to think of emergency physicians. And so there was clearly an incentive on that end to band together to try to essentially lobby the payers and government that this is a new type of practice and we should be paid for it because of the payments were treated more like an office visit when they were clearly, you know, more valuable than that. So John Wigenstein in 1968 got together seven other people here in Michigan and they met at the Michigan State Medical Society and said, hey, let's call ourselves the American College of Emergency Physicians. So a presumptuous (laughs) start. But then the people in Alexandria and then another physician in Fairfax, Virginia, named Reinald Leidelmeyer, got wind of the Michigan people, and Leidelmeyer said, let's have the first national meeting of emergency physicians. So they arranged that in November of 1968. About 32 people from around the country came. And they met and were very excited that they had compadres in this realm. So they decided to create this American College of Emergency Physicians. They basically adopted some of the initial logo and policies that the American College of Emergency Physicians in Lansing had developed, and they went national in November of 68. They had their first national meeting in 1969, where they had about 65 people attend, I think, at the first meeting, and then it went up. It would double every year and and was up in the hundreds by the mid-1970s. And then it kind of took off. The first residency in 1970 at Cincinnati followed by many more. By 1975, there were 35 residencies in the country. The L.A. County USC residency started in 1971, and they had the first academic department, Gail Anderson, who was an OB gin doc, was put in charge of the emergency department, but he got the residency going and then petitioned to have the first academic department of emergency medicine and was able to recruit some people as the first 
physicians. Again, none of them had been residency trained, but they assumed that role. And then when he had some graduates, he would pull them in to make them the first faculty in emergency medicine. Dr. Pamela Benson was the first ever emergency medicine intern in 1971, and she held many ASEP leadership positions throughout her career. I'm very pregnant. I go into the cafeteria. I fix my tray. I walk out into the proper of the cafeteria, and I'm looking all through the cafeteria. Well, there's one seat, so I head for that one seat, and across from me is Ethel Weinberg and David Wagner, and they were talking, and I sit down, and they're being polite, and they turn to me, and they say, you know, gee, Pam, what is it that you'd like to do? I said, well... The thing I want to do doesn't exist. I want to be an emergency physician. Now, if it was a movie, all the music would have stopped and everybody in the room would have turned to look at me while I said this because David and Ethel were discussing starting a residency but didn't know whether there'd be any students who would do it. Now, what were the chances? I mean, you know, this was, this was like fate. So basically, that was the beginning of the three of us working to, by the time I finished school, six, seven, six months later, have a program put together. Dr. Robert Daly was the first chief of emergency medicine at Valley Medical Center in Fresno, California. He's a former director of the EM residency at L.A. County, USC, and founded what became known as CORD, the Council of Residency Directors. He was a strong advocate for resident education, and he describes the struggle of starting an EM residency in colorful terms. You can ask the next question, which is, well, when did the fun start? And of course, the fun started almost immediately because there were a lot of people involved in emergency medicine who were nationally involved and who were starting residencies under the worst of circumstances, as Peter has undoubtedly eloquently outlined. It was an awful, awful process to do. I mean, starting a residency program was akin to lifting yourself up by your bootstraps. I mean, the idea of faculty was ludicrous, uh, yet you had to have faculty. The idea of receiving institutional, monetary, and academic support was ludicrous. Uh, the idea of the emergency department as anything other than that dreadful place down on the first floor that you always had letters of complaint from and other problems uh, with suits, etc., etc., and being from the house staff about being there. It was nothing but a problem. It was a wart on the ass of prosperity, no question about it. Okay, so Brian, what was our role in the greater health system, and how has it evolved from that to now? Initially, it was just to try to provide someone who understood emergency care and was trained in as many hospitals as we could around the country. So the early graduates could go right out of residency and become the director of an emergency department. Hospitals were snapping them up like crazy because they were the best trained people for emergency care. Those individuals often, though, were having to slap together a staff that were not emergency medicine trained. But as the residency started putting out more and more people, you started having actual emergency medicine groups. And then it was just a matter of penetrating into larger cities, smaller cities, 
getting to the point where there was organized emergency care and then coordinating that with EMS, which was also very undeveloped at that time. So yeah, it just was a matter of slowly spreading in the practice realm and then also gaining some academic credibility, uh, trying to get into those traditional hospitals and hospital systems that were very much internal medicine and surgery dominated and did not have a very positive view about emergency medicine. So it was fighting those battles. And so what is our role in the greater health system now? Well, I think the people that I interviewed for the book would be amazed at how emergency physicians have risen. They wouldn't believe that we had the president of the AMA a couple of years ago that was an emergency physician or that we have you know, people high up in government and we have people running major institutes and centers and that we have you know, close to 100 academic departments across the country and that we have over 200 residencies. They never would have believed that. So I think our place is finally to have legitimacy. Even when I was a resident and in my more junior faculty time, we always had questions about, you know, what is emergency medicine? Is it really a specialty? Is it really something that you should devote your whole career to? The negative stereotypes were pretty prevalent even back then. But then as we were seen as people whose training made us very good at being parts of healthcare teams and our understanding of the healthcare system overall, we became more desirable in terms of being on hospital committees and hospital boards and heads of hospitals and chief of staff and deans of medical schools and like. So it took 20, 25 years from the time we had our earliest residencies to get to legitimacy, but we have. Here is Dr. Richard Levy describing what that felt like. There was always the undercurrent of what's a smart guy like you doing in this? Why don't? Why are you doing this? What's wrong with you? And um, in a similar fashion, I think my mother, my father uh, asked the question of how does this fit into the house of medicine? My mother, I thought, asked a, a, a more um, insightful question is uh, why would you want to do this? Which was actually a much tougher question mm-hmm. to answer. What I'm saying is that people outside also couldn't understand why, you know, a, a, a bright, energetic, smiling human being would go into something called emergency room because it also it, it had terrible reputation. I and mean, you know, right. it's sort of like that's where losers are. Right. Uh, it was almost like a general concept of, right. of you know, losers right. hang out there. So no, it was always a matter of, and that was part of what shaped me. I mean, if you think of my personality as you know it, part of what shaped me, maybe even put a little bit of a chip on my shoulder. Brian, looking back, can you pick one pivotal moment? There was a big meeting in Chicago in 1973, summer 1973. By then, there were probably 10 or so residencies established. But the the American Board of Emergency Medicine was just being put together. It hadn't been approved yet. And there was still a lot of question about whether hospitals were going to allow residencies to develop, whether the board would go on and develop. And so there was this big meeting that brought together 
the AMA, the AAMC, the residency bodies, all the other major medical boards, they basically kind of hashed it out over a couple of days' time, and they created something called the Blue Book. It was about an 80-page booklet that basically kind of laid out what the near future of emergency medicine was going to be. And they were able to get, very begrudgingly, an agreement that emergency medicine training was a legitimate need in the country, that emergency medicine residents should be trained by people who had trained in emergency medicine and not by others, and that the idea of a specialty should evolve and should be approved eventually. And so that was a really crucial meeting. And there were a lot of arguments and the founders, George Podgorny, who was one of the people that helped coordinate that meeting, uh, he called it a very contentious meeting. There were battles and people thumping on the tables and people saying that this should not go forward and that how could you possibly train someone in, in all the different fields of medicine because it would take you know, nine years of training to learn everything that we know. And, and then the emergency physicians had to say, well, we don't need to know everything that you know. We just need to know how to respond to those patients who are in crisis. That's our role and that's what we do. Dr. George Podgorny was the president of both ABEM and ASEP in 1979, the year that emergency medicine was recognized as its own specialty. He dedicated his life to training emergency medicine residents because as a surgery resident himself, he spent a great deal of time in the emergency department and was struck by the fact that the sickest patients were cared for by the least trained residents who were rarely supervised. He was at that Blue Book meeting and describes it in this clip. The importance of that was, A, it was the first meeting about emergency medicine, not called together by emergency medicine. First time, rest of the House of Medicine took a note that something is happening. And two, uh, that was the meeting when it became abundantly clear, or crystal clear, as Nixon used to say, uh, to everybody that for emergency medicine to progress from the viewpoint of emergency physicians, we need a great deal of formal education and training. But both sides fought and were not friendly, so to say, both really came to the same conclusion, education. And then another crucial thing that followed up on that was Peter Rosen's landmark essay called The Biology of Emergency Medicine. And he responded to being challenged by someone in another specialty who said there is no biology of emergency medicine. There's nothing special. And he wrote this paper that every emergency physician of that era had either on them or could recite from that there is this unique biology of emergency medicine. It's about, as he described it, uh, taking the person who's uh, trying to get up over the mountain and they're falling down the mountain and you're trying to put them back up to, to so they can get to the top of the mountain. It's this kind of rambling essay, but it had a huge impact on people at that time. It was published in 1979, early 1980. That biology of emergency medicine was kind of a rallying cry for emergency physicians, especially in the academic setting, to say there is a legitimate area of study and we should be the ones studying it. Brian, was there anything that was particularly surprising in this endeavor? I guess the surprising thing is just how bad it was in the 1950s and 60s. And if you look through media accounts of people that were 
transferred from one hospital to another. This was before Mtala, young 16-year-old that had a ruptured viscous and was at one hospital, but this was the private hospital and they wouldn't take him to the OR. And in the emergency department, he gets put in an ambulance that can't do anything for him and taken to the other hospital. And he's basically septic and dies, you know, before he can get the surgery he needs. And just things like that, these, just a whole litany of horror stories about people, you know, get just dying or having incredible morbidity because uh, someone didn't know how to intubate uh, or, um, you know, there was a radiologist doing emergency call and trying to figure out what to do. It was so fascinating to hear some of those historical details. I think my favorite quote was George Pudgorny. We don't need to know everything you know. We need to know how to respond to those patients who are in crisis. That's our role. That's what we do. Oh, man. Me too, Sarah. I loved that quote. It's emergency medicine in a nutshell. And it's really amazing to me that that early on, they recognized what emergency medicine as a specialty is. Our definition of a crisis has morphed and how we do it, what gadgets we use and who does it has definitely changed. But that really is still the crux of emergency medicine as a specialty. Yeah, and we all know it can be frustrating to work with other specialties, but it's not even close to the same way the founders had to prove themselves. That is one massive change. But as different as things are now, we still fight some of the same battles. Emergency medicine evolved out of the necessity to care for a rapidly growing population of patients who needed immediate care and didn't have a place to go. We again have a large population that needs care. They feel in crisis and don't have a place to go. We can use this foundation to look at what our role is now and what it will be, say, 20 years from now. Pulse check. The founders of emergency medicine faced significant challenges that they overcame by being scrappy, innovative, collaborating with other services, and above all, focus on education. They educated themselves, their colleagues in the hospital, the government, and the public. Education is absolutely at the foundation of our specialty. We love learning with you. Rate us and share with your friends and follow us at EM Pulse Podcast. Thank you to our department and colleagues for fighting the good fight. And thank you to OM Audio Productions for cleaning up those clips. Woo! <laughs> See y'all next time.